This is Dr. Tiberius Ratta in his teaching on Ezra and Nehemiah. This is session number two, Ezra, chapters three and four. Open your Bibles to Ezra chapter three. Remember that Ezra deals with a spiritual reformation. There is a physical reformation as well. But again, there is a spiritual reformation that's important here. And as we can see here, it, it starts with uh, the sacrifices uh, to God. Uh, for, for them, bringing sacrifices was a key part of their uh, worship. So in chapter 3, we will see how they actually begin to build uh, the altar so they can uh, bring those sacrifices uh, to the Lord. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, talks about the seventh month. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So this is probably the seventh month after the uh, returned. And the seventh month in the Jewish calendar is the month of Tishri. So what we have here, you have um, the Jewish calendar and then you have our calendar so we can see how it's uh, divided. So Tishri for them would be for us September, uh, October. As you can see, uh, there are a lot of the feasts, very important feasts uh, here. You have the Jewish Rosh Hashanah, the New Year. You have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which we will see that they will observe. So very important to understand uh, when it's talking about Tishri, where we are uh, in the in the calendar, so now they have to reinstitute the sacrificial uh, system. Uh, the Bible says uh, uh, they came as one man. Shows their unity of heart and purpose. So what they do first is they talk about uh, they have to come back to the sacrifices to the sacrificial uh, system so in order to do that they have to rebuild uh, the altar verse 2 says then arose Joshua the son of Josadak with the, his fellow priests and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen and they built the altar of the God of Israel the first thing they did they build the altar. Remember, the altar was outside. It was not inside the temple. It was right outside of the temple. To offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Again, remember the parallels between Ezra and Nehemiah, the restoration, and the Exodus event. Uh, why mention the law of God and, and why mention Moses? Because Moses was a key figure in the Exodus event. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, are key uh, figures in the uh, returned. So the returnees understand worship and the important of, uh, importance of worship through uh, sacrifices. Very, very uh, important. And uh, also remember that by this time, this uh, law of God is very well established. And this is very important to understand because uh, scholars who believe in the uh, in JDP, the documentary hypothesis suggests that the law 
only appears sometime later in the 4th, 3rd, 2nd centuries BC. But we see this, by this time, there's actually a law of Moses present. Either we refers to the first five books of, the, of Moses or refers just to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we don't know, but definitely there is a book of the law that Joshua actually talks about. And also here we have in Ezra, uh, Nehemiah. And now they desire to obey the law, even in the smallest of details. And they understand, because they understand in the law of Moses, there was a strict correlation between obeying the law and God's uh, blessings. Uh, verse 3, uh, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So what happened during the exile? Non-Jews settled in the land. Uh, now these were the people who were not very happy with them coming back and rebuilding uh, their temple. And uh, these foreigners, again, the problem is not that they're foreigners. The problem is that they're not Yahweh worshippers and that they're against the people of God doing the work they were called to do. So these people could, could include people from the surrounding nations, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Samaria, and uh, Egypt. But the altar was key because on the altar they offered uh, sacrifices. And uh, notice, please, they, they brought him morning and, uh, and evening. Again, Exodus 29, Numbers 28 gives us details about that. Not only uh, did they bring sacrifices, but they kept the festivals they couldn't keep when they were in exile. Verses 4 through 6, they kept the Feast of Boots. Again, a very important parallel to the Exodus event. As it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by the number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to bur offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Think about it. Think about being in the imposed quarantine, for, not for seven days, weeks, or months, but for seven years, or uh, however much it was between 587 when they were here. But now they can come back and build and offer sacrifices. And along with the Passover and uh, the Day of Atonement Yom Kippur, the Feast of Boots or Tabernacles, was one of the three most important religious celebration, celebrations for the Jews. Remember the calendar? It was in Tishri uh, 15. Again, September, October, uh, our time. And it was primarily a Thanksgiving festival to the Lord, showing gratitude to God for His provision. Provision during the Exodus event. During the whole time, God provided for them and God told them to remember and that's what they are doing now and it was uh, it was even observed during the post-exilic period we see that in second chronicles we see in ezra we see that in the book of uh, zechariah and even the early church uh, observed this uh, uh, this festival uh, this is the only festival where the israelites were commanded to rejoice before the lord Leviticus 
2340. So we have this key of rejoicing that again we'll see in the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord will be uh, your strength. Very important, the theme of, uh, of joy. So the people are coming back and they want to, to bring sacrifices to the Lord. They rebuild the altar. They bring sacrifices. They observe the, the feasts. And then besides the burnt offerings, you also have free will offerings. Alan Ross explains that the free will offering was an offering that could be made any time. The soul of the worshiper might simply be overflowing with joy over God and His benefits. Such free will offerings were the essence of a living faith. Well, that's very practical for us. When do we go to God with thanksgiving? It should be spontaneous. Whenever we see God at work and we see what God is doing, we should give Him thanks. It shouldn't just be a feast that we celebrate once a year. It should be a daily attitude of thanksgiving. Of course, they bring uh, burnt offerings. Uh, they make atonement uh, for sin. Very important. Again, this goes back to Leviticus um, 14. The language employed affirms that physical impurity, and you have uh, purity, uh, spiritual impurity, moral impurity, all these must be forgiven during this time through these sacrifices. The law's intent was to ban all sacrifices offered to anyone else but Yahweh. So if they need to rebuild, they need materials to rebuild. And what we can see is they bring the very best. Verse 7, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians, and the Tyrrhenians, who bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa according to the grant of the head from Cyrus, king of Persia. For us, these might not mean much. But what we see here, the preparation for rebuilding of the temple parallels the building of the original temple during the Solomonic era. Masons and stone cutters are employed. We have that in 1 Chronicles 22, along with carpenters, 1 Chronicles 22. And payment made in quantities of food, drink, and oil, 2 Chronicles 2.10. Myers correctly points out that, and I quote, No permission from Sidon and Tyre was required since it belonged to the king of Persia. The food from Lebanon had special meaning, always be used in special building projects and portrayed as superior in value. Uh, the wood, that is. Cyrus is credited not only with giving the edict which allowed the return of the Jews, but also with paying part of expenses necessary for the temple's construction. Again, the Bible says here there was a grant from the king of Persia. So then in verses 8 and 9, we see they begin to build. In the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of 
Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and their brothers. So the rebuilding of the temple starts in the second month as did the building of Solomon's temple. 1 Kings 6 and 2 Chronicles 3. The leaders of the project uh, are named here. And here we have uh, the names of God, both Yahweh and Elohim. Both of them uh, are used. And the fact that they are used here for the divine name uh, can be seen in the fact you have the house of God, Elohim, and the house of Yahweh are used interchangeably. Uh, this is the God of Israel. And again, the connection to the book of Exodus, where, where God is uh, revealing himself as I am. This is the time of April and May. Why do they build, why do they start building in, uh, during this month? Well, it's the dry season uh, in Israel. It would be the proper time to start uh, building. And as they build, of course, they praise God. Verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So again, we see both a physical restoration, but also we see the spiritual dimension of the restoration. There's joy. There's, uh, there's joy in celebrating what God is doing. Again, a parallel to the joy that accompanied the building of the temple uh, by Solomon in Second Chronicles 7, 6. Trumpets are used. Uh, why not ram's horns? Um, well, the trumpets were calling the assembly in Numbers 10, 2. The trumpets would sound the alarm in Second Chronicles 13. And they were used for celebration in First Chronicles 16. But notice what they're singing. His steadfast love endures forever. Was that a new concept? No, no, no. The steadfast love of the Lord, the chesed, the loving kindness of the Lord, that appears all throughout Scripture. It appears in Chronicles, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. It appears in the Psalms so many times. The steadfast love of the Lord. And they are giving praise to God, this love of God, this chesed, again translated loyal love, translated loving kindness uh, in our Bibles. It's a reminder of God's covenantal love that he has for his people. And that is the reason they are celebrating. Verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and the head of how father's houses, all men who had seen the first house, oh now we see a comparison between this and the previous temple. There were some old people who saw the glory of the first house. And now when they see the second one, the Bible says, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout 
and the sound was heard far away. Why would some people cry and why would some people rejoice? The prophet Haggai gives us insight uh, into this. In Haggai 2.3, God is posing a series of questions. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is not as nothing among you who saw this house in its former glory? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It seems that the older people who have seen the glory of Solomon's temple were bitterly disappointed when they saw this rebuilt temple. The foundation alone told them that the rebuilt temple would not rise to the level of the original temple. It could be that maybe the stones were smaller and would not compare to the big stones of Solomon's temple. Uh, we don't know. What we do know is that the weeping of the older people clashed with the sound of rejoicing of the younger people. Um, so what lesson can we learn? Could it be that we can learn from the past, but we should not live in the past? I don't know. But the lessons from Ezra 3 are very important for today's Christian leader and for today's follower of Christ. Worship should be a response to who God is, what he has done. Uh, that's what worship is. And we worship uh, through teaching. We worship through singing. We worship through giving. We worship through, uh, in, in many ways. Uh, we should not always think that worship is music. We can worship through music, but there is music that is now worship. Uh, very, very important to think about those things today. But worship is a response to who God is and what he has uh, done. According to the Apostle Paul, uh, our spiritual worship will be acceptable to God when we bring the sacrifice to God. And we need to bring ourselves first. Very important to understand the kind of sacrifice God uh, desires. Again, it is uh, in Romans 12, uh, the first two uh, verses where we are reminded what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Everybody stood and applauded. Yes? No. No, no, no. Chapter 4 tells us that they will encounter great opposition. And chapter 4 talks about the source of opposition, the persistence of opposition, the many faces of opposition, and then the consequences of opposition. First, we have the source of opposition. Chapter 4 introduces us to the idea of opposition to the work of God. 
Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So we see here a glimpse, a little bit of a glimpse of who these people are. Remember during the exilic period, these people were brought in to fill in uh, because a lot of the people were taken into exiles. So they identify themselves with foreigners who were brought in uh, during the Assyrian uh, captivity to repopulate the land. Again, this is not an unusual thing. It happened in other places. And you might say, well, let us build with you. is not a bad thing. Well, they say they want to rebuild because they worship your God as uh, you do. But if we read the book of uh, the, the rest of the Bible, we see that these people are not Yahweh worshipers, but they are worshiping other gods. They, they fear the Lord, Second Kings tells us. They fear the Lord, but also serve their own gods. After the matter of the nations from which, whom they had been carried away. Second Kings 17.33 So these are not just any people. Uh, they are Samaritans. Uh, they are uh, people who are worshiping other gods, not just uh, Yahweh. And the people of God here have discernment. Verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house of our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, and King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You might say, wait a second, these people are very ex exclusivistic. Well, that is true. And they have to be. Uh, and God needs to give us discernment as well to understand there are not many ways to God. But as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That there's only one way. And here God gives these people, these leaders, understanding and discernment that these people don't want to do good, but they want to harm the word uh, of God. And of course they make reference to Cyrus's edict in chapter 1. But the opposition doesn't stop there. We see that the people who oppose God's work are persistent. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, verse 4, and made them afraid to build, and bribed counselor against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Notice, please, the weapons used by the opposition. First of all, discouragement, and then discouragement leads to fear. So when you have fear, you, a lot of times you are paralyzed and you cannot do uh, the work of God. And notice that it succeeded for a while. And sometimes we are the same way. We are discouraged. And sometimes we're paralyzed by fear. Thankfully, that did not last. 
But we see here that that's not just discouragement, not just fear, but you have corruption. Corruption was alive and well. And the opposition found corrupt counselors to carry out their plans. So please understand that what's happening in the world today is nothing new. This is always the case where the opposition to the work of God is done through corrupt ways and corrupt people. We are reminded here that opposition is not necessarily a sign that we're doing something wrong. Sometimes opposition is the sign that we're doing something right. And that's what's happening here. They're doing the work of God, and there's opposition, and there's persistent opposition. And we see that this opposition comes in many ways, and we see the many faces of opposition. Verse 6, And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and uh, Jerusalem. And here in chapter, uh, then we have in Uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 8, you have Aramaic writing. I say, why why the switch to Aramaic? Well, Aramaic was the lingua franca of the day. That was the language of commerce and business. And if a king would write um, something like a royal decree, it would be in Aramaic. And that's what we have uh, here. Uh, Ezra 4, starting in verse 8, all the way to chapter 6, verse 18, is in uh, Aramaic. And they're writing uh, this letter uh, to the king. Uh, Verse 12, Be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding their rebellious and wicked city. Wow. The same people who see the city as the center of their religion because of the temple is called by the opposition rebellious and wicked. They're giving basically a report to the king. They're finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute again. Everything goes around money. They will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be Impaired. Verse 16, we make known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no position in the province beyond the river. What happens when someone rejects the truth? Well, when you reject the truth, you have to replace it with a lie. And that's exactly what's happening here. The truth was that these people, the Israelites, were rebuilding the temple to sacrifice to their God and to worship their God. And the opposition is lying and replacing the truth with a lie. And they're put in writing to send to the king. Uh, By the way, who are these people that are in the opposition? They are not lower class citizens, but rather scribes, commanders, judges, governors, officials who were foreigners deported uh, to Judah during the Assyrian uh, invasion. Uh, Yamauchi in his book Persia and the Bible suggests that uh, the taxes that could have been paid uh, were estimated between 20 million and 35 million uh, in today's money. Uh, and they were collected annually by the Persian king. Um, so what does the king do? The king does a 
research, he does his research, uh, starting in verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province um, beyond the river. Again, beyond the river is an expression to talk about uh, what's happening bef- uh, beyond the uh, Tigris and Euphrates. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and has been found that the city from old has risen against kings, and the rebellion and sedition have been made it, in it. Um, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men made to cease. And the city will not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt the king? Now we don't know what his research involved. Could it be that in his research he found about Hezekiah's revolt against uh, Assyria in 2 Kings 18? Um, We don't know. Uh, We know that Jehoiakim and uh, Zedekiah both rebelled against uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings uh, 24 and both suffered the consequences of that uh, rebellion. We don't know what it is, but it, it seems that the opposition was successful at least uh, for a while. Uh, so the kings that are mentioned here uh, are Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, again, they're mentioning uh, the previous uh, administration of Assyria, and they're mentioning Artaxerxes I, who was king uh, during this time. So again, uh, there's a new king. This is not Cyrus. This is not Cyrus who gives the... This is much, much later. So you have Artaxerxes uh, I, and we see that actually this, uh, the opposition is working And the work is stopped, verses 23 and 24. Then the work of the house, on the house of God that is in Jerusalem, stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So you have here a a switch in chronology. Remember, we are not talking about chronological order from beginning to end. So you have a narrative the switches from the time of Artaxerxes back to the time of Darius. This is a, a chronological uh, anomaly that occurs uh, in the book of Ezra. Because Artaxerxes lived, again, 465 to 424. Darius goes back to 522 when he's talking about the, when the temple was actually completed. So you have a chronological anomaly here uh, where you don't follow a strict chronological uh, line, but you have a gap uh, in history. Ezra tells the story out of order. Basically, that's what's going on here. Why? To remind us that in spite of opposition, King Darius supported the work of reconstruction. Indeed, under Darius, the Persian Empire reached its greatest power and um, and splendor so uh, uh, again it's important to understand that we don't have a clear chronological uh, line here uh, 
um, the conditions are, are, are different. But the, the, the points are clear. Opposition to God's work did not originate with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they will not stop with Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, opposition to God's work includes lies, pressures, and persecutions. But even so, God's work will go on, and God will succeed. Because it's not, God's, it's not man's work, it's God's work. I don't know about you, but this truth should be a great comfort to uh, all of us. should be a great encouragement to us who follow Christ today, in all times, in all places. That even though the church is persecuted in the entire world today, God's work will be done. And God will succeed. You have to read the entire Bible to understand that God keeps his promises. And even though we go through persecution and the opposition lies and throws a lot of things at us, God's work will be done. We're also reminded that the Christian life is not a playground. It's a battlefield. We fight every, every single day. And sometimes it seems that opposition will, uh, you know, will succeed. But it's only temporary. Ultimately, God's work will be done. This is Dr. Tiberius Ratta in his teaching on Ezra and Nehemiah. This is session number two, Ezra, chapters three and four. <laughs> 